0: If you're into designer furniture and you want the sofa that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends and all the quality, but without the designer prices. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or DesignerLooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that... Ladies and gentlemen, this is one-on-one with Bill Alexander. Hi everyone. Welcome to the show. Bill Alexander with you. Great to have you joining us today. And on the other end of the screen, we're actually talking to someone that we talked to, oh, a few months back. And what's interesting about it, it was one of the most viewed videos on YouTube that I've had in a long time. 11,000 views which to me is amazing but I think the reason is this woman has a message to tell and everybody wants to hear it. On the other end I have Victoria Valentino. Victoria how are you doing today? Well I'm doing fine. Welcome to my closet
1: (laughs) (laughs) and hopefully the dogs won't bark. (laughs) Well thank you for
0: having me in your closet today but uh, the reason I had you come back on again is because we did not touch on the subject um, that we're about to talk about today because we were talking about your career in Playboy and everything after that. But one situation that happened while you were with Playboy is that you were attacked by Bill Cosby, and you were one of the women who actually came out against him when this whole trial situation happened. And I did not realize until right now that he was released uh, last June. Um, yes from the uh, from the prison and it's it's just one of those situations that is just mind boggling how he could be released but again a lot of people don't see him the way you and other accusers see him.
1: that's because they weren't alone in a room with him <laughs> right <laughs> with pills on board that he had managed to uh, get you to take
0: so yeah. you had no idea what was going on. It's just that he was uh, he was there, and you had no no control over the situation because you didn't realize what was going on.
1: Well, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, after my little boy drowned um, it, at a week and a half after his sixth birthday in the swimming pool of my music attorney, who um, was giving a party to celebrate the successful negotiation of my recording contract with Capitol Records, Um, I was kind of derailed um, for a period of time. My grandmother, my great aunt, my favorite uncle, my other favorite auntie, Um, Everybody died, including the babysitter having a heart attack in my garage and the neighbor's dog killing my uh, son's guinea pig and rabbit. So it was a death cluster. I was 26 and I had never even been to a funeral. And the only dead bodies I had ever seen were, you know, the random birds and mice the cat brought in. Uh, which I, of course, as a little girl, always buried very ceremoniously, and put flowers on top of the grave, and knelt and prayed over them. And um, so it was a huge shock, and I was um, I was really in a in a an altered state for a long time after that. So, um, I was living with um my bunny trainer, Fran Emerson, who um had reached out to me because i my parents were not particularly uh compassionate and blamed me for my son's death and so um she reached out and said, "Come, stay with me in Laurel Canyon, which is." right off the sunset boulevard you know the beginning of the sunset strip okay and um and i was living on my advance money from capital records for my album and i was beginning to run out of money and i was picking up little you know parts here and there you know in in movies i picked up a some kind of part i can't even remember what it was i was I was going around as if I was underwater for a long time after my son died. People were steering me around by the elbow, driving me because I was not uh, capable of driving for a period of time and um, too distracted. And so anyway, um, I Fran said, hey, I know Bill Cosby. He used to play, like all of the other comedians, the Playboy Club circuit. Right. And she used to work the living room of the club. I worked the Playmate bar. She worked the living room back when we were both working the club. Mm-hmm. This is after the club. Uh, after we were working the club. The club was still going on. Um, but so she knew all the comedians and everybody. And, and um, she said... He, he's, he's doing this show and I can get you an interview. I thought it was I spy because when I would go over to my parents' house, they would watch it. And after my son died, of course, I wasn't watching TV or paying attention to anybody's career, not even my own. Um, So I didn't know exactly what show he was playing in, but I thought, well, maybe I can't go into the studio and, and, and record because i'd pretty much lost my music after my son died right and um, but i can parrot somebody else's lines or do background or whatever i just Mm -hmm. need a job to keep food in my mouth right and um so she arranged an interview with cosby and i thought it was an audition but when i got to the studio it was actually um in his trailer on the lot. And as I was going out the door, she handed me my son's eight by 10. And it was a beautiful picture of him looking directly into the camera, black and white headshot uh, with his little 60s Afro. He was um, biracial. And, um, and she said, take this picture and show it to, to Kaz, you know and tell him your story and so i did and i sat there in his trailer and he sat across from me holding the picture and he was mesmerized he just kept looking at it and looking at it and looking at it i mean it was a very powerful shot you know this little little boy directly looking at you through the photograph probably still has his fingerprints on it uh, Cosby's fingerprints. So as I often do when I'm under stress, I talk more and talk faster. And he was very silent staring at this picture, holding the eight by 10 in his hands. And I kept thinking, well, I'm, I'm sounding more and more like an emotional basket case. This guy is not gonna give me an audition. You know, he's not going to trust me to be sane on his set, obviously. So after a certain period of time, nothing was progressing. So I just stood up abruptly and took the photograph and said, well, thank you very much. And I exited, Mm -hmm. never expecting to hear from him, never expecting to see him again. Um, And I didn't until... Um, after I moved from France, I moved into my grandma's house. She had just died and my mom was renting the house. So she let me and an interim boyfriend and this other couple who were friends of his move into the house and rent the house in, Ho- in West Hollywood. OK. And um, it was a California bungalow that my great great uncle had built way back in the early 1900s.
0: Now, I, I have a question for you because I'm remembering the first interview. Yeah. You left there because you were having, it, you left to go there originally because you were having issues with your parents. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I am, I, I remember everything now because we talked about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For a while, I couldn't go into my own house because I couldn't look at my son's bedroom. Right. So I was sleeping on the sofa of my neighbors across the street. Um, and then I was back and forth between there and my mom's house. And then Fran just said, you know what? I see what's going on here. My mother was, what are you crying for? You know, right. well, my, my, my son just died. And, you know, so um, anyway, so that's how I wound up at France. And then I went to my grandma's house, which was, you know, I mean, they were all just sort of within a half mile of mm-hmm. each other, everything. And so um, so I was there and my roommate, this actress, um, her name was Meg, and she liked to go over to the Cafe Figaro over on uh, Doheny and Melrose, which was the dividing line between West Hollywood and Beverly Hills. And I was delighted to go because when i was a student in new york the cafe figaro the original one was in greenwich village and i used to do my homework there Uh and watch laurel and hardy movies and stuff they had a big screen and um so i i went with her and this particular day i was sitting there just grief stricken beyond words Um, you know, when you lose a child, it's not just like an emotional boo-hoo, it's it's like a horse kicked you in the gut.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, uh, it's a very visceral kind of pain, and it comes in waves, and you can't predict it, and you can't do anything about it except basically try to survive it. And um, so I really kind of didn't want to go, but by that time, I was driving, and I had my car, and, I, and she didn't have a car, so I wound up being recruited to do the driving. And um, we went over there, and we could have a, a bowl of <laughs> French onion soup, a basket of warm bread, and uh, we scraped our pennies together for a half a carafe of red wine, which we shared. So this one day, I was just sitting there crying into my onion soup. And just convulsively, I I, I just couldn't stop crying. And all of a sudden, this man I saw standing at the edge of our table. And I realized it was Cosby. At the time, I didn't know that he was part owner of the Café Pigro. I learned much later, years later, in fact. So, um she had these eyes that were like a Malamute, like an Alaskan Husky, you know, these white blue eyes Mm -hmm. that were absolutely mesmerizing. Everybody who came in contact with her never forgot her eyes. She had a story about a boyfriend in New York calling, and we were at this vegetarian restaurant in Hollywood. And he told the waiter, he said, look for the eyes. (laughs) <laughs> you know, to give her a message. And of course, he found her right away. Right. So, those were the kind of eyes she had. And what I have since learned, since I've gone public about Cosby, is that eyes were one of his fetishes.
0: Oh, really?
1: Yeah. And um, so, he, knowing my story already from the interview in his trailer, knew that I was a, a mess emotionally. And he wanted to get to her. So he used my grief to act compassionate when he was chatting her up and said, well, you know, Vicki, which is what everybody called me in those days, which I hate actually, but, uh, she, um, he, he said, you know, she's, she really needs, um, needs something you know some some nurturing and he said he put her in charge of me okay and said i'm going to treat you girls to this spa down on santa monica boulevard to finish steam bath and a massage and he gave her his private number and he said when you're done give us give me a call And I'll send my driver over to your grandma's house and pick you up and I'll treat you to dinner. It'll do Vicky good. So that was how that came about. Okay. So we wound up at a steakhouse on the sunset strip right next to the whiskey of go-go. It's not there anymore. There's another restaurant, but that's the way it is in Hollywood Right. restaurants come and go. And, um, So we were there sitting in kind of a banquet style. He was to her left and she was to my left. So I was the tag along and he ordered wine and I don't know what I ordered, but I wasn't hungry and he was busy chatting her up and trying to entertain us with mush mouth kind of jokey stuff. And I wasn't interested, but I was there. Right and knew I was just sort of the the tag along. And I knew that I was the excuse for him to connect with her. And so I was sitting there kind of rearranging the food on my plate, not really paying attention to them. And I guess that bothered him. And he reached across my plate and put a, a pill next to my wine glass. And he said, here, take this. It'll make you feel better. It'll make us all feel better. And then he put a a pill next to her glass. And then he acted like he was going to take a pill. Right. And um, then shortly thereafter, he reached across and put another pill directly in my mouth. Same to her. And um, I guess I thought, well... You know, initially, I think I must have thought it was an upper because everybody in those days, all the managers of clubs, everybody was giving you diet pills to keep your weight down so that you would fit in the bunny costumes. They were giving you um, uppers so that you could work longer shifts and still be perky, you know, So it was kind of a standard thing. And I don't think any of us initially realized they were addictive. They were just diet pills. And the doctors gave them to us. They gave them along with um, diuretics to get rid of the water weight. Right. And birth control pills. And birth control pills in those days had pretty much just been invented. And they had a whole lot of estrogen in them. And so they made us blow up. Mm -hmm. So we were always at risk of being too fat for the bunny costumes and we didn't want to lose our jobs. Right. So this trilogy of medications was always part of our everyday life, except we started having electrolyte imbalances and getting weird, you know, and falling apart and emotionally and, you know, fainting and on in the service bar and stuff like that not understanding what was going on now as a registered nurse of course i understand how devastating that combination is Um, but anyway so i i think i i figured if he wanted if i wanted to feel better and if he wanted me to be perky it was just another diet pill right so i knew the reaction that i had to those so i thought okay so i took it Unfortunately, pretty soon my face was in the plate, and so was hers. And um, I remember saying, I want to go home. And he said, oh, okay, sure, you know. right? And we went back up the, the back stairs to the upper parking lot where his driver was with the car, and his driver was gone. And I remember saying to him, where did your driver go? And he said, oh, he had something else to do. And I remember thinking, how weird is that? You know?
0: Yeah, that the chauffeur had somewhere else to be when he's on Cosby's dime. Yeah, that's odd. Right. Yeah.
1: So Cosby said, well, I'll drive you girls home. And it was only a few blocks. So, you know, so I got in the back seat. She was in the front seat with him. And instead of turning right down onto the strip, he turned left up into the Hollywood Hills. And pretty soon, you know, he's swinging around corners and swerving and my stomach is heaving and I've got the spinners and I'm hunched over and I'm going, oh God, please let this be over soon so I can crawl into, into my bed. Well, he stopped and there we are in front of some building. It looked like a townhouse. And he said, oh, I want to to show you girls my awards. And I'm going, oh, God. Right. (laughs) You know, last thing I care about are your damn awards. I just want to go home. And um, so I thought, well, maybe the two of them want to, you know, kind of get it on or something. So I'll just stay in the back seat of the car and wait and they'll come back out, and then we can go home. But instead, after he got her out, he opened the back door and he reached out and he pulled me out. We went upstairs two flights in a, in an elevator. And when he opened the door, it wasn't an office. It was a little room with two love seats and a little writing desk and a fake French provincial phone and a little table light a lamp. And she went directly over to the one against the wall, sat down and just keeled over and passed out. And I went to the one that was about four or five feet from the front door, parallel to the door and sat down and put my head back And I don't know whether I passed out or what, but then all of a sudden, everything was so silent, it woke me up. Right. And I looked around thinking they had left me. And uh, instead, he was sitting next to her, looking down on her like some kind of a hawk. And you could see what was going on in his mind. It was just all over his face, plus his jeans were bulging. And uh, I just thought, oh, my God. And she had a boyfriend. We each had boyfriends who we were living with. And um, so I just started thinking, my God. So I started reaching over the arm of the love seat and trying to, you know, but I couldn't make any anything other than these guttural sounds trying to distract him. And uh, at first he ignored me. Then he started getting, you could see his expression. He was getting more and more irritated and aggravated with my distraction. And finally he stood up and he was angry and he came towards me and his face was like a gargoyle. And I stood up because I had had an experience with my first husband of domestic abuse and I was fearful. But then my knees were, my legs were like rubber and my legs started to collapse and I was trying to hold on to him so I didn't fall. Next thing I knew he had me on my knees and he was sitting down with his uh, fly open. And then he stood me up and turned me around and bent me forward. And uh, then when he was finished, he started to just leave. And I remember saying, well, well, how are we going to get home? Garbling the words. And he wouldn't even look at me. He looked at the desk with the fake French provincial phone on it and said, call a cab. And then he slammed out of there. And I just got up and I staggered over to her and, and said, we've got to get out of here. We've got to get out of here. And um and, we got up and we started to go, well, how are we going to call, you know, how are we going to call a cab? We don't know where we are. We don't have an address. And, um, and then we thought, well, maybe if we called home, maybe her boyfriend would have some kind of idea he could figure it out because we just couldn't think clearly. Right. And um, so we went and picked up the, the phone and there was no dial tone. So she said, Oh, well, maybe the, maybe the cord is out of the jack. Mm-hmm. So she got down on her hands and knees and she crawls under the, under the desk and there is no jack. And I pick up the cord only to discover that it's a prop phone. The cord is cut, oh. one of those old cloth cords. Right. So we went, oh my God, so what are we going to do? And then we thought, well, we'll just go, we'll go out on the street. We'll try to figure out where we are. And, um, we got to the elevator and then we had this panicky moment where we thought, what if the door opens and he's in it and we're trapped. So we looked for the stairwell and we, you know, teetered all the way downstairs, went out on the street and we were up in some windy little street and we could see the city lights below. And I don't know how late it was, it must've been after 10 and, um, And we started running downhill and she got down to the strip before I did and managed to hail a cab, which in itself was a miracle because you just don't hail cabs in L.A., you know, it's not New York. So um, anyway, we climbed in the cab and got home. And when her boyfriend opened the door, we just sort of rushed through the door and whatever. I don't even know what we said. And he put his arm around her and they walked into their bedroom. And I went into my back bedroom, which was the same bedroom that I was in uh, when I was taken home from the hospital when I was a newborn and where my mom and I lived um, until she remarried. I was three and a half, Mm -hmm. so um, it was, you know, my comfort zone, you know, and um, so I never thought to even go to the police. I felt just, I mean, it was the last straw broken on an already broken woman's back, you know, and uh, so I became very suicidal very depressed. She wanted to go over to the Figaro again one time. I didn't want to go, but I had the car. So finally, I acquiesced. And I don't know how much longer after that happened that we went. Um, She was going through the front door and I was dragging my feet, walking down the sidewalk. And all of a sudden, There were people on the street going, oh, look, there's Bill Cosby. And I went, oh, my God. And I I was trying to decide, do I run back to the car or do I run in trying to catch her and grab her to go to the car? But either way, I was going to have to pass him. Right. So this big black limo pulls up to the curb. And I don't know what possessed me. I went up to the back window of the limo and I looked in and I did one of these but inside the limo was his wife
0: ooh okay
1: and him and she looked absolutely so elegant so beautiful her black hair pulled up in a beautiful chignon at the top of her head and and which made me feel even grubbier and more powerless and and just defeated so I managed to walk away, go in there, and we found a little, she had found a little table tucked away someplace, and we never even saw them come in to the restaurant. And then uh, I was uncomfortable, and then after that, I was, um, you know, just very suicidal, and I decided I needed to get back to myself. Who was I anymore? You know, who, I, who had I ever been because I didn't, I, I'd lost myself entirely. And I, I remembered that the last time I ever remembered really being me or feeling like myself, feeling whole was when I was a little girl crawling through the woods in Connecticut.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I said, well, that's it. I've got to get back to nature, whatever, whatever it takes so my music producer was the first guitar of eric burden's group the animals and he and his astrologer wife lived out in topanga canyon about 45 minutes uh, outside of la okay and it's a canyon where people like neil young and bob hurt and Linda Ronstadt, a lot of artists and musicians and alternative living people, thinking people lived, artists and craftsmen. And, um, so they said, we'll get you a room in, uh, our neighbor's house, come out here. And so I did. And, um, at the end of that year, I had met this really crazy congressman's son who was a guitar picker and a songwriter. And he said, Vicki Blue, he said, I'm, I'm leaving for New Orleans. You coming with me? I love you. And I thought nothing left to lose. Right. And so I did. And thank God, because it was his mother who saved my life because she loved me unconditionally. Mm-hmm. And taught me all her good Cajun recipes, and I got six nieces out of the bargain that I crocheted for and wrote, sang my songs to uh-huh. learn to cook a good gumbo. And uh, so, uh, unfortunately, he was an alcoholic, and um, I, after three years, I wound up having to take our daughter, we had a little beautiful girl who's turning 50 next month. And um, she's given me two wonderful grandsons. And um, I, I left. So I went up to Oregon and signed up for college. Art history, ceramics, you know, things that right. really were healing and meditative. And, and um, over the years, I avoided talking about Cosby. I just tucked it away. Then in 1981, my aunt said, bring the kids down. I had another daughter by then. Um, And um, she said, come down and stay, and uh, I'll take the kids to Disneyland. Okay. So 81, I came down to L.A., and I thought... I think i'm going to call meg her number was no longer in surface but i knew she was uh with william morris agency coincidentally that is cosby's agency okay i didn't know that at the time and i called them left my name and number and she called me back in about five minutes and uh, we started talking and catching up over whatever happened to each of us and blah blah, blah. And As soon as I brought up that night, she shut me down. Boom. No, he's a wonderful man. He's a wonderful man. You're just being so negative. And the conversation was over. And I have never spoken to her since. Okay. So I tucked it away. I made references to what a schmuck he was over the years, but I never told anybody the dirty details ever. I never, in my mind, ever really called it rape, because I just blamed myself for being stupid, for having taken the pill, for not fighting him off, for not having better survival skills, or something. You know, somehow I just bought it all, bought the guilt. And um, 2005, I was heading out to work. I had a radio show that I was doing at Pasadena City College. And I was working as a registered nurse in um, an adult daycare center. And my youngest daughter, who was an adult by then, was living with me. And we had CNN on. And I'm rushing out the door. And all of a sudden, we hear Bill Cosby has been accused by a woman for drugging and fondling her. And I stopped dead. Right. And my daughter, who was standing there with her teacup, turned and looked at me, and we looked at each other, and I said, my God, that's a pattern. And she said, yeah, Mom, you should get in touch with that woman and lend your support. And I thought about it, but I didn't want to dredge up the past anymore. I just wanted to keep moving forward. You know, I didn't want to bring up anything negative. So, um, Every day I thought about it, but I couldn't do it. So then years go by, his son is murdered. And I went, oh, my God, now he knows what it's like to lose your only son. Right. And I thought karma. And I wrote a little short story about it. I didn't have it published, but I mentioned it to this other playmate who was doing um she was writing a book or something or wanted to do a video on playmate uh memories okay but the story i wrote was just about that i called him mr comedian i never mentioned his name i never discussed the details of what happened but just that karma had come back to bite him in the butt right And then after that, it was over. So then the end of 2014 comes up and it's November 21st, late at night and I'm getting ready to go to bed. I'm checking my email and I see this story on Yahoo, this woman named Barbara Bowman, who was, saying that she had been trying to be believed about Cosby drugging and raping her for 35 years and nobody believed her. And even at that point, I said, I, I just, I don't right. want to know anything about it. I can't, I just go away, go away, get out of my consciousness. I'm doing positive things. I, I just can't go back into that place anymore. And, um, but just after that, as I'm getting ready to shut down, all of a sudden, Hannibal Burris calls Cosby a rapist in his stand-up routine in a nightclub in Philadelphia, and I just stopped dead, and I didn't shut, it off, shut the computer down, and I watched his routine, and it was like, come on, Black folk, you know he this is he's quoting cosby in his stand-up routine come on black folk pull your pants up you know um and he's giving them some kind of moral guidance right and hannibal burris is saying who the hell are you to talk come on cosby everybody knows you're just a rapist whoa suddenly it was like this little I don't know, explosion, you know, this red rocket of anger just started in my gut and just shot up like fireworks into my brain and blew up. And I went, oh, that's it. You know, it was like, that was my tipping point. And so I started thinking, who do I know? Who do I, you know, who can I talk to? And of course we were always going to the Playboy Mansion for the big parties. So you, you know, in, in the 90s, I knew a lot of people uh, associated with Hef and journalists and megastars and, and this and that. So I, call, I, I tried to get in touch with a journalist who I knew worked for People Magazine. And that was it. I waited, went to bed. My brain was whirling with all of these thoughts suddenly, and woke up in the morning, raced over to the computer to see if I had gotten an answer. Nothing from People Magazine, from this journalist. And then I went back and I thought, who did Barbara Bowman speak to? Who wrote her story? And turned out it was the Washington Post. So I went on the Washington Post website and I'm looking for the little comment box. Right. You know? And thinking, I'm just going to say it. You know, I was drugged and raped by Bill Cosby in 1969. And not really ever expecting to get an answer. answer. And within the hour, I got a call from Adam Kushner, the the executive editor. And he... From that moment forward, it there was no turning back. And so I came out in the Washington Post and um, they told me, you know, there are gonna be a lot of a lot of media calling you once this hits the stands. Right. Uh, we can field all those calls, or you can take them. And I thought at that point, it was like suddenly. Everything started rushing out of me, you know, that I had stuffed all those years was just like pouring out of me. My brain was exploding. Everything was just, you know. And uh, so I said, in for a penny, in for a pound, you know, send them my way. And from that moment forward, it was like nonstop interviews non-stop interviews in in every every major media show, CNN, New Day, Inside Edition, um, you know, everything. Uh, Don Lemon, um, you know, and they were flying me back and forth to New York, and uh, Inside Edition was sending cars to take me out to their studio in Culver City. And I mean, it just suddenly became this explosion of women coming out of the woodwork and every show I did, the Dr. Phil show, Don Lemon special, I was meeting more and more women who had had almost identical experiences with Bill Cosby, except, you know, it was like variations, but always the same theme. And we started forming this circle of the sisterhood Okay. The circle of sisters and sharing information and having support groups and, and comforting each other and, and experiences and, and and you know and, and then other people who were caught up in the story were collecting data, um, brandy bets who would do a spreadsheet. You know, and and put every woman's information on a spreadsheet, the time, the date, the the experience and the symptoms, his symptoms and what he was doing in his life. As our careers were being derailed, as we were suffering PTSD, he his star was climbing.
0: Right. And that. Yeah um so it's interesting and i because i was doing the math when you were telling me so it's been 53 years since the incident Mm -hmm. did you ever think that it would ever come out that you would be able to tell your story and people were listening or or would listen or were you afraid that you were going to keep it with you for the rest of your life
1: it never occurred to me that i would ever talk about it and certainly not use his name because i was afraid okay one of not being believed, but afraid of repercussions by him. Because by that time, he was one of the most powerful men in show business, practically owned NBC, practically owned William Morris Agency. And who am I?
0: Right. Oh, I understand. You know, because I who think would it's believe me? Yeah, because I right? think it's interesting that um, because there's power in numbers with all these women coming out being able to do this. Now, the one thing that surprised me, because I'm also in the state of Pennsylvania, where the trial happened in Montgomery County.
1: And I was there. I was there at both trials and the sentencing. Too is, bad you didn't let me know where <laughs> you were. We could have, uh, I could have
0: had you brought you into the trial. That would have been, inter- that would have been interesting. But the thing it gets me is there's still people out there that believe that he couldn't do this. There's people there's a
1: whole there's a whole Twitter thread called Bill Cosby is innocent. And some of the horrific things that they say about us is so damaging. I mean, we we have had not from those particular people, but we've had death threats. We're called um, gold diggers. We're called liars. We're called, you know, one of our sisters was spat upon. Oh, you know, I we've
0: we've I, I can't even begin to so, tell you. But the thing I don't understand, and I think the people need to understand is you you were not trying to get financial gain, you were just well, trying to tell you because it was too long. But you were just trying to get it out there, truth to, and
1: justice, man.
0: Yeah, to get and it out to people to make them understand. Hey, this is what this guy did. He's not America's dad the way they made him appear on TV. Because, again, he was everywhere and that's what it was supposed to look like. Now, since since the first the whole thing broke in 2014, what have you been doing um, with your advocacy that you are doing for victims of rape and violence and domestic abuse?
1: Well, initially it was just me feeling like, my God, I finally said it. You know, I finally said it and I'm networking with all these other women and we're supporting each other and the truth is finally coming out and maybe maybe there'll be justice. Right. Not for us, only vicariously through Andrea Constant, who was the only one of us who was still within the statute of limitations. You know, um, so it wasn't until probably early spring of 2016 and i'd done tons of shows by then and networked met so many women by that time there were like 62 women who came forward we had done the um new york magazine empty chair cover which blew the lid off
2: i remember that yeah
1: and um, NBC Dateline, we, I mean, there were 27 of us on that show. I mean, it was just mushrooming the knowledge, the experiences and, and the vast reach of damage that he had created amongst so many women in their, their lives. One of my sisters was so afraid and so physically damaged by him, she left and went to moved to Spain so she anyway so finally that summer a friend of mine who had been the director of women's issues in sacramento uh called me and told me that there was a group that was going to be meeting in west hollywood a group um that was um being organized by one of the original founders of the National Organization for Women, a woman named Ivy Bettini, who was, I think at that point in her late 80s and practically blind and walked with a cane and needed a caregiver. But she was so passionate about finding truth in all of this and getting justice for us that she recognized that there needed to be a change in the laws. Because the statute of limitations in California alone, and it's different in each state, the statute of limitations in California was only 10 years. And what people don't understand about post-rape behavior and symptomology is that a lot of times, as in my case, you can't talk about it, how many years, how many decades went by before I was able to even just say the words, to say the word rape, to call it by its name. And um, so in order for justice to be achieved, the statute of limitations had to be expanded or abolished. So we started meeting at the Jewish Women's Center on North Fairfax and West Hollywood, once a week we started making t-shirts with no uh you know the no sign mm-hmm. sol and um we started speaking out we started speaking we we rallied on hollywood boulevard on cosby's star um we um decide, we one of the women who was in our meeting um uh, Knew a couple of senators. One of them was Kamala Harris, by the way, our vice president. And she was a California senator at the time. And the senator that she reached first was from San Bernardino County, Senator Connie Leva. And she convinced her to write this bill called the Justice for Victims Act, SB 813. Okay. And um So once the bill was written, we had to go up to Sacramento, our group, members of our coalition. And so we would carpool. I would go up with Lily Bernard, who was one of uh, Cosby's survivors. She's an Afro-Cuban muralist with six children. And um, who is also at this point now suing him because in New Jersey, where he raped her in Atlantic City, the laws have changed with the statute of limitations. And so now she is able to file suit against him in New
0: Jersey. Oh, wow. Okay, She
1: was she had him on tape threatening her. And and because she was just a couple of months out of the statute of limitations, she, she couldn't do anything about it. So but, now she can. So, you know, things are changing. So anyway, so we kept carpooling up. We were testifying in front of the Senate Committee on Public Safety. My testimony is in Gloria Allred's documentary of her life story called Seeing All Red. Okay. Um, we carved, we, we, we lobbied, we walked from office to office all through the state Capitol. We rallied on the state Capitol steps. We interviewed for every media outlet that would give us airtime. And, um, and we just, we just went, went for it, you know? So um, one particular amazing moment, we were uh, testifying in front of the West Hollywood City Council where I had been raped the end of 69 right, by Cosby. And we testified, we got a, a yay, unanimous yay vote to move forward. And um, as I'm leaving the assembly hall and going out into the lobby where there are big screen TVs where everybody in the lobby could see what was transpiring at the front of the... Um, you know, the city council meeting, there was this sheriff standing there, a woman sheriff in her beige outfit, packing a gun. And as I walked out, I started to go past her and she just looked at me, put her hand out. And I looked at her And she had this little smile on her face, trying to act stoic and professional. And I just said, and I took her hand to shake it. And I said, I'd really like to give you a hug, but I don't know if that's acceptable, you know? Uh And she threw her arms around me and we stood there and we hugged and we rocked. And it was the most healing moment. know like the circle had come around you know right it was it was unbelievable
0: now when i when i look back and again they threw out the case in 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 pennsylvania because Mm -hmm. there was a supposedly a deal made that he could not be prosecuted and the and, and again i i still think that this was money that bought him off i don't care what anybody says It was, if you have the most money, you're going to win, no matter what happens. And he walks free. He walks out. Yes, I understand he's old. I understand he's ill. But he doesn't have to pay for the crimes he's committed. And that's the thing that had to be deflating to you and the group that were put together because of him. Because all of a sudden, he walks out the door and people are saying, well, he got off free. So in other words, it must not have happened.
1: Well, what happened was, and and it was absolutely beyond deflating, the legal system ripped the rug out from under us, vacated his entire sentence, vacated all of our testimonies, all of our stories, and um, (sighs) he is no longer registered as a violent sexual predator. Which amazes me. Yeah, but... Now here's the backstory: the 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 prior the former DA Bruce Castor, who also testified for uh, Trump's uh, acquittal, yes, you know, bumbled around like a fool, yes, there, and he, as it turns out, um, his father was the realtor that helped Cosby get his Cheltenham mansion. Oh, okay. In Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Right. So you don't think there was something going on there? Oh, I'm sure. No. So, so again, there was nothing written down on paper that there was an agreement made that if Cosby told the truth on camera, I mean, on, on tape, under oath, that he would no longer be prosecuted. And that's what Bruce Castor was saying, that, well, I promised him that if he told the truth under oath, that I wouldn't prosecute him. But there was nothing written down, no agreement in writing. And as you know, if it's not in writing, it's not worth the paper it's written on. So, nevertheless, um, we all heard, and the jury heard, In court, Cosby admitting that he bought drugs to give to women to have sex with them. In court, we heard that. His voice, he admitted it.
0: I'm honestly surprised that no one has taken that testimony that was recorded and uh put it on a video loop on a website just having it go over and over again.
2: Oh, because I would so
1: love that, man. I, because, I would blast it out of the front door of my house,
0: <laughs> you know? Because the, 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 the woman you said in Atlantic City, she now has him admitting to what he did. And if she does file, there's no way she can lose, in my opinion.
1: Well, I would certainly hope so, because she has been through hell. Right. And she, And she's a, a brilliant actress, a brilliant painter. She was a guest on his show. And, and, and she and I did a lot of media together, probably because we both lived in LA. We were both pretty. We both um, were a good contrast. She, the Afro-Cuban, uh, young enough to be my daughter, you know, with her big, beautiful hair, and me, the old blonde, you know? <laughs> and so they could easily access us. access us, and we were both articulate. I mean, she's got a master's degree. I mean, she's a brilliant woman. And, and um, you know, so we did a lot of media together. And I know, I know from, from years of being close to her, the damage that this has done to her. I, right. I know. I know. I You know, I can't tell you what I know because I, I don't want to betray that. Right. Um you know, for her sake. And uh, so, um, you know, it, 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 it was just unbelievable. But, but now Kevin Steele, the DA that prosecuted him and got him convicted, who is just this kind of Jimmy Stewart kind of guy, mm-hmm. you know, his closing arguments were so kind of slow and laid back, like he's just riding a slow horse with his chaps and his, right, you know, right. And then I wanted to jump in and do it myself. You know, I was like, come on, come on. And then all of a sudden, without warning, he'd kind of slip it in from the side, you know, get it between the ribs and, you know, zoom, you know, it was I mean, he was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But anyway, he is he is working right now on re-prosecuting. Okay. but the reason this came about, Cosby getting out, uh, this decision was December 1st, last year, um, there, he Cosby won an appeal hearing, finally. He'd been trying for some time and finally achieved an appeal hearing. And I was in North Carolina with my kids, packing to head to the airport in Greensboro. So I'm watching it on my phone on Zoom. And I'm and even at that point, one of the justices triggered my predator little intuitive signal, a guy, old man, white hair. And I just went, oh, mm," you know, and the woman justice, she says, well, I just don't see a pattern here. And we're going, what? You don't see a pattern. Everybody in the whole frickin world saw a a pattern. Yeah including the jury, including the judge, including everybody except for the people who managed to get to the line in front of the courthouse before seven in the morning, the Cosby apologists who, you know, were bringing pictures to be autographed by him when he walked in. You know, I mean, it was unbelievable. What a circus.
0: Now, the other thing is, too, is that why, and I don't know if you would be able or not, did you not file a civil suit against him?
1: Well I have my statute of limitations was way even way, even on way a civil suit, there's nothing I can do about it. He hasn't done anything he has not personally or any of his entourage personally said anything in public to discredit
2: me okay
1: some of the women who uh, had a libel suit against him um because they his wife i think they had accused him of being liars okay but that happened the day before i went public oh okay so i i couldn't even be part of that uh suit that libel suit however had i been i my lips would have been zipped i wouldn't have been able to go public and talk about it you see and and Frankly, that's a good thing because even though I didn't get money out of the whole deal, that wasn't, I, I mean, I practically bankrupted myself going public and and being where I needed to be to speak because it was so important because if I had gone with that suit, I would not have been able to be in front of the camera talking about oh, it that's, all the yeah, time. Gotcha. Yeah. And that was what my role was apparently universally karmically whatever right. i had to be that that
0: voice now, the, the one thing i found find interesting and i'm pulling up i've pulled up old stories and the people that were supporting him like felicia rashad they were all acting like he was the victim and i'm thinking and, and now because i guess howard university pulled her honorary degree or whatever it was. And he comes out bashing him and saying it's the mainstream media. And I'm thinking, no, he's a bad man, did bad things. And he needs to take responsibility. Even though she made millions because of him, that doesn't mean she has to support him. The funny thing is the rest of the cast, you haven't seen hide or hair of them in years, especially when his name comes up in conversation.
1: Nicole Rochelle. She was one of the children actors on that series. Now, he didn't rape her as far as I know. She was the person in front of the courthouse who jumped out topless on the walkway as they were walking him on the sidewalk. She had all of our names written on her torso.
0: I just pulled up the photograph. I see it right here. Yeah.
1: And you'll you'll see Victoria is written right Uh here. (laughs) Well, she lives in France right now. She's an actress and an amazing singer. And she wrote a song. I I wish I could remember the name of it, but it's um, Just Call Me Bill, you know?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) And it was a very hip hop, but it was an incredibly brilliant song. And the lyrics were Incredible, but right after that, she was in Paris and had a, her baby prematurely, and little Lawrence who died, mm-hmm. and now she has another child, a little girl who lived, and uh, but she and her husband and her baby they live in in France, and um, but she she knew, everybody knew, everybody knew, they knew something was going on. I have a friend a guy named Tommy Lightfoot Garrett. Okay. He had, um, he worked for HBO. I think he currently works for HBO, but he had a um, Hollywood highlight or highlight Hollywood um, uh, journal, online journal. And he was um, raised in a very wealthy black family in Bel Air. And he said that when he was growing up, he had been warned by Betty Davis and Barbara Stanwick about the Cosby's.
0: Oh wow.
1: Yeah. Don't go to their house and take anything from them. Not him, them.
0: Them. Interesting. And, and for- he
1: said, and he told me, he said it used to be the joke that when the Cosby's would have a party, all the kids who were invited up to the party. Would always stop and get drunk before they would get there and eat before they got there, because it was well known.
0: That yeah, um,
1: everybody knew what they did.
0: If if and I, and I'll, I'll share the picture, the the, the, the Nicole's uh, photograph. You're right. You're right here along the neckline, and it says women, and then it blurs everything out from. Like, but there it is, right there.
1: Yeah. And the cop, the the cop, Carl, who always was seen walking right behind Cosby when he was walking into the courthouse. He was the one who got her under control. And I thanked him because he didn't taser her.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, he he pushed her. It looked like she was coming out of the hedge, but he was actually pushing her back into the hedge and getting her out of the walkway. And, and he was great. He was also the one who, uh, because I got stuck out in the hallway coming in from a break when the jury was going in to read out the verdict, and I got stuck out in the hallway with this crowd of people from the courthouse, and, and I was so upset. I thought, all of this time, and I can't be in there when they're reading the verdict, know it was just insane and so anyway so carl this wonderful cop he texted out guilty 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 and we were out in the hallway going you know and but he he was a great guy and i thanked him i said thank you for not tasering her because that would have just been awful right and he said well it would have been inappropriate
0: yeah and of course, and that would have been the story. That would have been the focal point because the news media was there and saw it. And then, yeah. yeah. Um, do you ever think you will see the day that he actually gets sentenced again? Or do you think it's just going to go away because of his age?
1: I, I don't know. I mean, I I hope. I hope he winds up uh, being put back in prison. Um, Gloria Allred who is just an amazing woman, no matter what other male attorneys say about her. right? Uh, She knows how to work the media so people get the story and it doesn't get swept under the rug. I mean, she is one strong woman's advocate. She was raped at gunpoint in Mexico.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, she's not just talking off the top of her head. She's been there. She knows. So anyway, Gloria... Uh, has a civil suit against him currently because he took a 15 year old girl judy huth to the playboy mansion and raped drugged and raped her there and so gloria will depose him he has no choice but to be deposed by her at this point so you know justice is going to come one way or the other do we know when that's going to happen or has there not been a date set? I don't know. I, don't, I haven't spoken to Gloria for a while yet. Uh, so I don't know. And I haven't heard her mentioning it in any of our groups.
0: So I right. don't know. Because yeah. I, I think, especially with him, because he became the face of this behavior. Um, And people, when they see him, that's the first thing they think of. They don't think of anything else anymore. And that has, no matter if he would ever be able to get a career back again, he would never have one. But that's the first thing people see. That's the first thing people think of. But yet you would assume that other people in the spotlight would realize that because of what happened to him, they should not do this anymore. We have a we have a former president who was accused by how many women and nothing happened. I don't understand why these men are able to get away with it. And I know it has a lot to do with the money they have and the power and the influence. But eventually you would assume the court system would catch up with them.
1: Look, When you have enough money, you can afford to pay for a hermetically sealed chrysalis around you. Right. And what Tommy Lee Garrett told me, um, Lightfoot Garrett told me, not Tommy Lee, um, he told me that, um, well, now I've forgotten that happens at my age. (laughs) Just went right out the window. Um, He he told me um, that there were careers made. Of guys by Cosby for supplying him with an endless supply of women that he could drug and rape. And the thing with Cosby is he he can never have sex with a woman with her face. He can't have them look at him or he can't look at them. Right. And even one of our sister survivors, Beth Ferrier-Tillo, said that, and she had had a consensual relationship with him. They broke up. And then when they made up again, that was when he drugged and raped her. And, he, and she said that even when they had a consensual relationship, he always had to do it doggy style or with her face turning away. There's something, some, some brain glitch that he's got going on.
0: Interesting. Um, yeah. And, and 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 I've noticed, and just listening to you talk um, about the one friend that you were with when the incident happened, is that she basically denied what happened. So were there other women out there that were still enabling him and trying to justify what he did?
1: Well, I suppose if they think they're going to be making book, you know. Okay. On some level, if they're going to get starring roles in something, as it turned out, she wound up getting a guest spot on his show in 1986. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, I only found out about that a couple of years ago. So. But but when I went public, The Washington Post tried to vet me, of course. Right. And she was the witness. Well, she wasn't really a witness because she was unconscious. Right. But they contacted her, got her telephone number called. She never answered any of the calls. And then ultimately, William Morris reached out to the Washington Post and said, we have decided not to comment on this issue. Now, the journalist, Scott Hyam, who wrote my story along with Manuel Roig Francia, said to me, that's more damaging than if they had just simply said no comment. Right. Or we don't know what the F you're talking about. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think the thing now is that we have to just get out of this rut. You know, we're spinning our wheels right now and we're worrying about him. Right. Whatever's going to happen with him is going to happen with him. The fact is what is happening with us is that we have found our voices. We opened the floodgates for the Me Too movement to take the fore. Now, the right. Me Too movement had been there all along, but it really hadn't taken the front row of, in, you know, in front yeah, of the cameras. Yeah, it did so, become
0: uh, on the mindset of America. Yeah,
1: but interestingly enough, interestingly enough. Oprah, who is supposedly supportive of women, never went public in support of us. Interesting. And we all wondered about that. However, come the Oscars after the Weinstein women found courage because of us. Right. Because they. They realized that we had spoken our truth. We were not decapitated in the in, in the village square. We right. were not eviscerated. And yet, you know, Oprah still didn't speak out. So the Weinstein women then have courage. They come out against Harvey Weinstein. And then suddenly the Oscars and Oprah stands up and give this, gives this incredibly moving deep powerful speech why didn't she come out for us
2: well
0: well my because she would...
1: and camille cosby were best friends
0: that's what i was just going to say yeah Ta-da! yeah i mean that that is really I, I i can't believe that wrong is wrong no matter who you're friends with yeah. and if you have a voice like that you come out on the side of right. But again, she kept her mouth shut. And I am surprised, again, that no one's really said anything more about that, because to expose her as being two-faced. I mean, it's just very interesting. What's that? She participated. Well, yeah. And again,
1: she probably- had. She was his personal manager. She knew where every penny went, plus one of my neighbors- who was a chanteuse from Montreal, woke up in the middle of the drugging and Mrs. was part of the little
0: orgy. That is, that 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 again- And, and she wh- is
1: too terrified to ever speak out about it.
0: Because what is she afraid is going to happen?
1: Well, there is nobody else who has mentioned
0: it. So she has no corroboration. Oh, okay. For but one again, thing. But, but I, I get Camille, but again, Oprah- being this woman's advocate that she claims she is and then all and then not saying anything it makes it look like she has a tie to cosby himself other than camille
1: well maybe she does
0: right you I, know i, I, I mean I when I, listen
1: bill when i was trafficked by my first husband after my um centerfold hit the stands yeah i um I experienced stuff that no 21-year-old little girl from Connecticut should ever experience. But I can tell you that there were a lot of couples that would hire people, women. So it does not surprise me. You know, I saw the slimy underbelly of so many megastars who are still held up on pedestals to this day. Right. I got gotcha. you. But um, I know how much they charged and I know all their fetishes. Oh. And you know, so what do you you know yeah. what do you, what does a kid do with that? You know, here I am 79 and I I look back on that and I think why didn't I ever move forward? Ever, all I ever wanted to do as a kid was sing and dance on Broadway and somehow I wound up in LA. Right. And you know, and I was a good actress, I was trained actress and yet after what happened to me I I was afraid to really push myself in show business. I was afraid I was going to cross paths with some of those people.
0: Oh, well that makes that that makes a lot of sense. I can understand why. And
1: I didn't want to be recognized right. and I was fearful. And I also had lost my I, you know, the apple had lost its shine. Right. And suddenly it was like, I don't want to be part of that. Yeah. That's not who I am. I don't want to be in that. You know, it was just, you know, it just grossed me
0: up. I, I mean, it, it just, it just amazes me that this was going on and probably still going on per se. And it hasn't, and, and no one has stopped it because it, it is just, I mean, we've always heard the stories of the casting couch. We've always heard that. But what you're saying and, and being trafficked trafficked out, being drugged and everything else, I mean, that is just unheard of in my mind In the and where I'm at, which, again, it probably happens more places than not. It's just it's not hitting the news every night. Well,
1: I'm sure it's happening as we speak. Yeah. You know, I think every eight seconds a woman is being raped and look at these poor women now in Afghanistan, which just totally breaks my heart. These little children starving, the women who were on their way to a degree, right, you know, now are shrouded in these blue, uh, you know, in chadri, you know, in these burkas and, and, and have no life because after all. What are women for? <laughs> right?
0: Right. We're and, just and...
1: here to uh, be punches for, you know, ignorant sons of bitches who who have no imagination or have no self-control or whatever, you know. I mean, we're we're just vehicles for
0: receptacles right. and yeah. incubators. Yeah. Again, and 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 again, I don't know. I have a I have a daughter who is in her teenage years. And I feel that I've always been this, this um, way concerning these issues, but I've noticed that the older she gets, the more um, adamant I've become. And I just think that that if you have a daughter or if you have some a mother that you love or a sister, whatever it is, how can you stand there and let this happen, especially those people that are in power in the legislature in Congress, in the Senate, you and I were talking a while back about the Equal Amendment, that it's only been ratified in how many states? I think it's 38 or 39 states. There's 50 states in the Union, and we still haven't had an Equal Rights Amendment.
1: Yeah, and stop it. Listen to this. I mean, okay, my, my, my male cousin, whose diapers I changed. Right. We have the same ancestral roots. Our ancestors fought in the Revolutionary War. Right. Our ancestors were here from 1732. I have it written down in the Bible. Uh huh. And yet he's e- he's equal under the Constitution in any state he decides to go to, but I am not. <sighs> now, how is that? How is that just? It, it,
0: it just doesn't make sense to me. Um. That, that we live in this, this male society that degrades other human beings, especially women, who honestly, I think, are better off and more intelligent and more rational than most guys that I know. I know I'm married to one I've been married for 25 years. And I know that if it wasn't for her, I probably still wouldn't be here because oh, they say she's say that the one Men
1: that- live longer if they're married.
0: Right. So, again, it just amazes me that we have people that are that. Do you want to call them stupid? Do you want to call them ignorant? What do you want to call them that still think that we go back to 200 that, that women are property? I don't get it. I would exactly. figure by now, it would all be equal.
1: Which is why the only male I am owned by at this point in time is my chihuahua and my <laughs> orange tabby cat who wakes me up whether I want to get away get up or not. It's right. 7 o'clock on the dot. And I'm going, leave me alone, leave me alone. And I'm thinking, husband, orange cat. Hmm. You know, it's almost no, I, the same. I, I
0: get it. Yeah. But again, it, it just what society I would figure I'm in my mid fifties now. And I thought that it would get better the older I got. And what I'm seeing, when it comes to, to, to uh, the way people are treated, it's getting worse. And how do you fix that? How do you get through it? I know that, that that sometimes it has to be crushing to you, that things that you try to get past or people you work with or talk with are not, succeeding the way they should be because of the post-traumatic stress
1: you know um after Cosby got out of prison uh it was like non-stop interviews Mm -hmm. every day and then I took a red eye on a Friday night and arrived in Philly on the Saturday and we had a vigil in Independence Square and I gave a speech it was spontaneous and I just pretty much rambled I didn't tie it up The way i wanted to but my point having been that my legacy will wind up the 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 things that i will be remembered for are my my tits and ass (laughs) essentially from playboy and being raped by bill cosby not the songs that i have written not the patients who i i made comfortable as they transitioned into the next plain
2: mm-hmm.
1: not the acting parts that I ever did when I played Saint Joan of Arc when I was 17 and mm-hmm. lost myself in the part to the point where I became and wound up on my knees in tears at the end of her monologue. You know, when she was committing herself essentially to the flames, rather than admit that she was wrong and be in a dungeon for the rest of her life, away from riding her horse and nature and hearing her angel voices. You know, none of those things will ever be known about me, really, except I'm going to talk about them anyway, and I'm going to write them in my book. Right. But, you know, I, I was just one of so many of his victims. And I think of the talent. I think of Lily Bernard's incredible talent. And I think of every single woman that I have met through this journey who is so talented and yet that won't be what they will be remembered for. Right. They will not have been able to fulfill their, their profession, their gift, their, the world will not have been able to, to be graced with their gifts because he damaged us to the point where our careers were derailed while his stars soared. And I think of all of those women and their talents and their beauty and their, their, their spiritual gifts that the world will never have a chance to be graced with.
0: Right. And, and, and again, when you think about it, when you think about it not only with his victims, but with every victim that we're dealing with, it, it's just um, it, it's just unbelievable that somebody thinks that they have the power to take away something from someone else. And it just it, it, to me it just angers me the more I talk about it, which probably is a good thing. But again, it just, I just don't get it. I really don't understand why people feel that they have to be in control of everybody, but yet they can't be in control of themselves.
1: But you see are they're, they're, they have malignant narcissism, which comes from a deep place of unworthiness. Mm-hmm. It's like this black hole where everything gets sucked into it. You know, no matter how much, we would be praising no matter how many accolades, no matter how much money he's making. You know, any of these people, Trump is another one who has the same diagnosis. Yes. And the people who are still, you know, bowing to him, yes. Bowing to this madman who ha- they're sociopaths. You see, and people who have a moral compass, people who are naturally empathic. People who have um, a conscience, mm-hmm. it is inconceivable for them to imagine anybody who has
0: none. Right. Oh, yeah.
1: And so that's why we, the empaths, the ones who are conscience ridden, it is that's why we become victimized by these people, because we always try to see the good side of that person. And so we keep giving and trying to help them and trying to support them and, you know, and feel bad because they had a troubled childhood or, you know, all of that stuff. Right. We're the compassionate ones. Right. And they're sucking it in. Yeah. And they're like a bucket with a hole in it. We keep pouring in the water and they're still empty and they will take all we've got to give until we have nothing left to give. No more juice. Yeah, yeah. And then they'll kick us to the curb and go on to the next, the next person. person who has oh, juice. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, And they'll
1: use them up, kick them to the curb. That's what Trump is doing. That's what Cosby did. And that's what so many other of these megalomaniacs will do. And there will always be somebody who looks at them and, you know, like, like the evangelist in the tent, you know, the Jim Joneses. Yes. The David Koreshes, Yes. You see, that is that same malignant narcissist. That is that diagnosis. And I've worked a lot towards. So I know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, that these people, they you know, they, they're grandiose, you know, they think they are so fabulous. And if they have been medicated for their bipolar or for, you know, their schizophrenia or whatever, you know, they think after a period of time that they don't need it because they start feeling normal, right. but they also miss the energy that they got from their insanity. hmm and they want the color and the vibrancy that that gave them. Right. And so they go off their meds and the meds are still in the system for a few days. And so they're thinking, yeah, see, yeah. I'm okay. And then all of a sudden they start decompensating and they wind up having a psychotic break. And guess what? They're in the window with a shotgun holding their wife and kids hostage, Yeah. you know, and then they wind up, being thrown in the
0: locked ward right exactly you well know. victoria thank you very much i mean i it was it was it was nice to talk to you i can't say it was a pleasure to to relive everything you've been through um, <laughs> I you and i've I been talking on and off since the last interview and i i really am glad that i've gotten to meet you maybe thank not you. in person but this way because of the i think we've developed a friendship here
2: and, yes we um, have
0: and the next time, or if anything comes up that you want to talk about, please let me know. We'll get you back on again. And um, I, it's been a pleasure. I'm still looking. I'm waiting for the book. I'm waiting for you to actually get that done.
1: I need an editor. <laughs> but let me mention, let me put in a little pitch for Kamal Bell, okay. who has a four-part Showtime series, who was going to be at at, Sunday, at the Sundance Festival. I was interviewed. It's called uh, "What uh, We Need to Talk About Cosby. OK. And um, we are now online and the premiere will be on January 30th. And I am also in the process of having a website designed and I will let you know when it launches.
0: Well, that sounds and I great. I will be
1: open to speaking with people directly if they want to, you know, touch right. bases.
0: Well, Victoria, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you next time
1: thank you so much bill thank you for having me
0: hey a big thank you goes out to victoria valentino for joining me today victoria thanks very much for talking to us and can't wait to talk to you next time well that's going to wrap it up for truly bill alexander for all of you watching and listening you have a great day we'll talk to you next time
1: thank you for listening to one-on-one with bill alexander One-on-One with Bill Alexander is a million-dollar baby production. For more information, go to
0: billalexander.net. If you're into designer furniture and you want the sofa that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends and all the quality, but without the designer prices. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com.